In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The words from the book of Daniel. Then from the Gospel of St. Matthew. <clears throat> Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we think about those words, we may surely discern what some might nowadays call a certain tension, perhaps even conflicting messaging. After all, the Old Testament lesson carries a definite aspect of warning, perhaps even of threat. It may seem good news insofar as it promises us resurrection and the life to come, but then it makes clear that that life to come need not be a happy one. In fact, if we do not get things right in this life, it threatens to be an eternally unhappy life. By contrast, the message of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew seems far more reassuring, at least if we are sure we meet those criteria. So which of those do you suppose fits? Let us put aside for the moment meekness, since it seems slightly unclear where that gets you. You inherit the earth when it's heaven we're thinking about. And again, it doesn't seem a widespread virtue in the vicinity of Beacon Hill. That leaves your being hungry and thirsty, merciful or a peacemaker, or perhaps you think you're poor in spirit or so reviled and persecuted that you will make the grade that way. Then again, perhaps you plan to rely on your purity of heart. But now we might by this point notice something else which is that, as it stands, by virtue of being written long before the time of Christ, obviously, there's nothing specifically Christian about the view of salvation in the text of Daniel. But is that not also perhaps a missing dimension in the Beatitudes, if we read them on their own? After all, a person of any faith or none could be hungry and thirsty, merciful, a peacemaker, or indeed poor or persecuted, not to mention perhaps pure in heart. So that leaves us another slight conundrum. At least that is until you look at the overall structure of Matthew's Gospel, which will make it clear that the Beatitudes in chapter 5 are merely one part of a much longer narrative. After Jesus went up into the mountains and before the multitude, so it is only in chapter 8 that Jesus comes down from the mountain and the multitude then follows him. And it is after that that he first meets the leper, whom he heals, and then the centurion, whose servant he heals also, adding very specifically some interesting words. Verily I say unto you, 
I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. This passage has many layers to it, not the least being that of the many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And as it happens, you will have seen from the order of service we're about to host here at the Advent on Thursday afternoon and all day on Friday, a conference looking actually at some aspects of just that, exploring the ways in which the early church fathers of North Africa have shaped Christianity and Anglicanism in particular down to the present age. And part of that story also engages the East, by which I mean those other heartlands of the early church in what we now call Iraq and Syria, while another aspect is the transmission to Europe of key Greek texts, first translated into Arabic by Syriac monks, and later from Arabic back to Europe through Spain. So do come to the conference. But what this passage in chapter 8 of Matthew makes clear is that, is that recognition and belief in who Jesus was is essential to participating in the salvation he brought to us. In other words, we must say, in the words of the centurion, words that echo down to something we say at every Mass, with one slight variation, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant, in this text, shall be healed. In other words, it's necessary to recognize and acknowledge and believe in Christ as being the Son of God and thus divine if we are to enjoy the fruits of faith. And it is within that context of recognizing who Jesus was that we must approach the words of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Faith in Christ is central, for then, if you hunger and thirst, are merciful or a peacemaker, or are poor in spirit, or persecuted, or reviled. The kingdom of God is promised unto you. And almost by definition, at that point, the possibility of being pure in heart becomes open to us all as well, ensuring that we may yet be among those who will, as we pray, see God. But how does all this relate to the theme of remembrance, and indeed the specific context of a requiem, and moreover that Perhaps unusual thing it might seem a requiem on a Sunday, as we find ourselves observing today. Well, this brings us back to that verse, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For we can now understand this as being true by virtue of what Christ revealed and accomplished, and this in turn provides a particularly Christian perspective on national and indeed international acts of remembrance of those who have died fighting for their country, which is the act in which we are participating today. While such services do happen here in the United States on this date, they are the norm in the United Kingdom, Canada and other parts of the Commonwealth for historical reasons. 
But what is of particular interest is that these essentially national occasions and acts of public remembrance have a significance that is growing in our culture rather than fading. As such, despite the increasingly secular character of many societies, it is striking that the role of such acts in public life has actually expanded over the course of the last century. In part, this reflects a significant change that came with the First World War, because before 1914, the vast majority of those who served in armies, were injured or killed, were volunteers or mercenaries. But after 1914, conscript armies fought wars and left behind bereaved parents, widows, orphans, and did so on a scale that had never occurred before. By the end of the First World War, over 1,100,000 men from Great Britain and the Empire had died in the conflict. So almost every community and family affected there was in some sense in grief for those lost lives. But there were additional factors too. At an earlier stage, at an early stage in the war, it was decided not to repatriate any bodies of the fallen. Moreover, the intensity of these new kinds of conflict on the Western Front meant that almost half the fallen simply could not be found. There was nothing left and many of the dead who were found could not be identified. They had to be interred anonymously, bringing, of course, to us very vividly the horrific nature of the war. None of the grieving families had graves to visit at home, so instead, across Britain and the Empire, many thousands of war memorials were built in the post-war years to be found in every community. But perhaps, too, were especially important those of the cenotaph in Whitehall, the empty tomb, and the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. The idea for a tomb for the unknown warrior was first conceived by a military chaplain, the Reverend David Railton, in 1916. He had served on the Western Front, where he had seen a grave marked only by a rough cross and a pencil-written inscription saying to an unknown British soldier. He wrote to the then Dean of Westminster Abbey, Herbert Ryle, in 1920, proposing that an unidentified British soldier from the battlefields in France be buried with due ceremony in Westminster Abbey, as he put it, amongst the kings, to represent the many hundreds of thousands, and as I said earlier, indeed million plus, who had died. The idea was supported by the Dean of Prime Minister David Lloyd George, who later wrote that while the cenotaph is the token of our mourning as a nation, the grave of the unknown warrior is the token of our mourning as individuals. This turn of phrase captures the several layers to what it is that these monuments and their associated acts of remembrance each year have come to represent. And of course, the body of the British unknown soldier was first selected in France and then on the 11th of November received a full state funeral and was interred just by the Great West doors of Westminster Abbey where it remains to this day. The gravestone, which remains in place, is of Belgian marble and features an inscription composed by Dean Ryle, engraved with brass melted down from wartime ammunition. And it reads, beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior, unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land and buried here on Armistice Day 
in the presence of His Majesty the King, George V, and his government. Thus are commemorated the many multitudes who during the Great War gave the most that man can give, life itself, for God, for King and country, for loved ones, home and empire, for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. But if all this has a strongly military aspect, that's far from the whole story behind the rise in concern to undertake acts of remembrance, which has indeed increased since 9-11. Here the vital interplay between commemoration, meaning and history comes into play. For producing history and the act of remembrance, these are gestures toward finding and recognizing meaning in the past. Where there is no commemoration, what meaning do past events, deaths, and indeed lives have for us? And what history can there be? Without this, there can only be a deep sense of disorientation. And is that not, in so many ways, exactly what we see in modern secular society? Here we can perhaps ponder the rise in significance of that emblem of the First World War, now widely used for commemoration, in Britain and Canada you see it especially, namely the Red Flanders poppy that suddenly bloomed en masse across battlefields where the earth had been blown open. It was in fact the Canadian, a Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, who served as a medical officer in Ypres, Wipers as it was pronounced at the time, who first forged the link between poppies and the Great War with his poem in Flanders Field. He first noticed the poppies in May 1915, while burying a friend who had been killed in action. And he wrote the poem shortly afterwards. And it opens juxtaposing the death of men with the birth of the poppies. To quote, in Flanders' fields, the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark out place and in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. In its opening, thus the poem follows a long tradition using pastoral imagery as the antithesis of war. But by the third and final verse, there is clearly a message for the living from the fallen, which is a marked change in tone. To quote again, take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. By ending thus, an elegiac text becomes instead a call to action, and potentially yet more sacrifice to come. But this also goes back to the closing words of the inscription in Westminster Abbey, themselves taken from Chronicles 24, the second Chronicles, I should say. The inscription on the tomb of the unknown warrior there reads, as we remember those words, for God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire, for the sacred cause of justice, the freedom of the world. To the Christian, that must ultimately point to what Jesus Christ uniquely made available, which is the possibility of a redeemed world, made whole with God. So lastly, there is just one more thread of thought to be called to mind, and that goes back to Colonel John McRae's poem and those larks still bravely singing. 
For there is a famous story told by Joseph Fürster of Mahler's funeral in the cemetery in Grinzing in 1911. He noted that although Mahler had requested no music be performed, nature intervened, for somewhere in a tree a bird sang a disjointed springtime melody that reminded of the final movement of Mahler's second symphony. There, above a world shaken to its very foundations by the horrors of the Last Judgment, a solitary bird soars aloft, as high as the clouds themselves. The last living creature, and its song free of all terror and free of all sadness, fades away quietly, ever so quietly, as convulsively its final note coincides with the entry in the symphony of the trumpets that call both the quick and the dead. The interpretation of Mahler's thought here is highly contested, and it's been argued that he arguably rejects the Christian claim that God's judgment is the ultimate guarantor of the meaning of an individual's life on earth, and that he must therefore locate that meaning elsewhere if he is to offer an answer to the existential questions posed by the first movement of that symphony. And that in addition, it's been argued, the very concept of resurrection is somewhat foreign to certain strands of the Jewish faith, while the idea of a last judgment with no judge and no recognition of good and evil is just as unorthodox to a Christian. Yet, the jubilation that we hear at the end of the symphony, after that narrow thread of the birdsong, seems to tell us that death has truly been conquered. This, I would argue, is only conceivable within a theistic universe where a world redeemed is possible. And that whatever the theoretical uncertainties of Mahler's philosophical position, the music conveys that as powerfully as any other medium could. And of course, there are the words of the text he set, which he himself arranged. O sorrow, you are all penetrating. I was wrested from you. O death, you are all conquering. Now you are conquered. Auferstehen, ja auferstehen, wirst du, mein Herz in einen nu. Was du geschlagen, zu Gott wir es dich tragen. Arise, yes, you will arise, my heart in an instant. What you have beaten will carry you to God. In words of a different ilk, do they not recall the vision of the second verse of the hymn we have just heard? There's another country I have heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. It is to that that we are called by the act of remembrance. Amen.